This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. It is not intended to cause or induce breach of an existing agency agreement. Hello? 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 This is the Vancouver Commercial with a state podcast. And welcome back to the Vancouver Commercial Real Estate Podcast. I'm Corey Wright. And I'm Melissa Moretti. And we were just talking here before we hit the record, but I feel like I haven't been here forever. And because, I haven't And been you here. haven't been here forever. I was away at a conference yep. in Palm Springs. The listeners miss me. Yeah, the listeners miss you. Like the email boxes have been filling up where, where is Melissa? Not my email box. No, people, they've been demanding you. They've oh. been sending me emails. Where is she? And I, I didn't know where you were, but right you just on. told me you were in Vegas. I was in Vegas for two nights. For two nights. Well, I was let's, there let, for a wedding. Okay. So tell us about this. How, how, okay. Where'd you stay in Vegas? Oh, you know what? I've decided the next time I go to Vegas, I am going to stay at somewhere much nicer. Yeah. Where did you stay this time? We stayed at Excalibur. And Ooh, was, the castle. It was kind of like a, oh, uh, whatever, you know, yeah. middle of the line hotel. We're not going to be in the hotel that much. Yeah. Oh, but no, no, no. It's a little grunge. Yeah, look, I've I've never been in the Excalibur when yeah. I've gone to Vegas. I've walked past it, obviously. Yeah, I kind of got that feeling like I wouldn't want to eat at that buffet. <laughs> I didn't eat at that buffet. We went to the Win for brunch. It was beautiful. The Win for brunch. Wow, very clean. Wow, it felt, it felt very residential real estate is selling now. <laughs> yeah. So you're you're in Vegas for two days. What did you see so at the wedding on one day? What did you do the other day? You got to give some good stories. Here. Oh, you know what? I didn't do that much. We we went out a couple times. I've decided I'm I don't. Want to do the clubs in Vegas? It's yeah. Over. Well, where'd you I go? I should have bought tickets to Usher. That's what I should have done. Usher. Usher's in Vegas now. Usher has a residency in Vegas. Where's he at? Caesars? Uh, MGM. MGM. Yeah. Usher at MGM. I know. Interesting. I should have bought tickets. I'm regretting it now. But honestly, the best thing I did was do a little bit of shopping, which is terrible. What'd you buy? <laughs> I love Tory Burch. So I bought a little, you know, a little wallet, some earrings. Must be so nice. Residential real estate is selling. Breakfast well, at the Wynn, shopping know. at Tory Burch. I'm not sure about that. Anyways, back to you, Corey. Where, yes. where have you been? You've been gone. Yeah, I feel like I've been gone for a while. I was away at a conference um, in in Palm Desert down there, which was, I've okay. never, never been to Palm what, Springs before. It was what great. Kind of conference? It was a conference put on by Ernst & Young called the Strategic Growth Forum, where they oh. had a uh, tremendous uh, lineup of speakers, uh, who whose speakers were like Jay Shetty. He oh, was amazing. one of the speakers. Uh, Reese Witherspoon was one of the speakers. Very cool. Which I think a lot of people re- with Reese probably thought like Legally Blonde, but she actually has a big production company. Yeah. That um, they they sold a pretty hefty stake in it. And rumor is it's around like $900 million was the value of the company. So she wow. spoke a lot about like the social media market. Um, cool. She has a book club, the productions. Uh, production company she has and some of the movies that they've produced like Amazing. like Gone Girl and like I had no idea yeah. um, so she, she was really good they had uh, a lot of uh, CEOs were speaking economists were speaking uh, I think the head of SAP North America was speaking and wow. I can't remember who said it but there one of the presentations was on AI yep and, and the takeaway was AI is not going to take your job but the people that understand AI will. Exactly. Right? So it was kind of all about that. Now, again, some industries will probably be more affected than others. But yeah, a lot of really, really good takeaways. I'll be honest with you. I haven't read the book, Think Like a Monk, which is Jay Shetty's. Yeah. And I really didn't have any expectations going in. I knew of him. He's amazing. He has and, a podcast, by the way. a podcast, which now I've downloaded his books. Yep. I've got his podcast. Uh, he was amazingly engaging. Yeah. And uh, it was all kind of about like, what does the next generation of leaders look like and the importance of connection? Mm-hmm. And after, it's funny, I talked to a few people in our company after that and people were like, Jay Shetty was there? You were in the same room as Jay Shetty? And I, yeah. I didn't realize how big Jay Shetty really was. I actually listened to his podcast but, really regularly. But he was extremely engaging, really, really well-spoken yeah. and uh, definitely one of the highlights of the uh the weekend uh, from Palm Desert I down bet. there. It was really, really good. Were you not nominated for something? I feel like this was a nomination. It, it, it sort of was on the back of an Ernst okay. & Young uh, nomination thing they had. Entrepreneur that, of the Year. Something to that effect. Yeah. Um, so it was a really good conference. Um, I, I, funny story okay. is I get there. I, so I fly in on the Wednesday 
And we have, a, I guess it's like opening dinner Wednesday night. So I get there. I fly in the morning. I get to the hotel probably one o'clock. I've never seen so much Tommy Bahama on a plane in my life as, as, as I did going to Palm Desert. And I get to the hotel and I've got a tea time. And all my colleagues that were, were teeing off with me have all dropped out. So it's just me at this point. So I, I, I pay my money. And the guy goes like, go over the bridge, take a left past the driving range. There's two courses. So I get over the bridge and I take a left and I get on the tee box. And I'm like, oh, it's odd. There's no tee ball mark or, or tee box markers to show you where to hit from. I'm like, oh, you know what? Maybe, maybe they don't do that here. So I tee off and I, I get onto the fairway and then I hit my ball onto the green and I'm like, oh, there's no hole and no flag. A little odd. So, so obviously I'm about 60 feet from the hole. If there was a hole, I'd put it in obviously from 60 feet. So I give myself a birdie. And I go to the next hole, and again, there's no T markers, and get onto the fairway, and I hit my ball on the green, and there's there's no hole, <laughs> there's no. So I, at this point, I'm thinking this is a little odd, but you know, I paid my 86 bucks. I'm going to keep playing. You're just on the lawn. And, yeah, so then I go to the the third hole, and now I'm behind uh, this big massive production they have. They had a band called Little Big Town that did a private concert for all the all yeah. the attendees and the dinner. So now I'm like behind the stage on this hole where these people are kind of looking at me like I shouldn't be there. But they're probably like, well, he's on the golf course. Like I mean, he, he obviously knows what he's doing. So I get to the third hole now and there's <laughs> still no tee markers. And I hit my ball into the fairway. So I get up to my ball and now all the sprinklers turn on. <laughs> so I'm thinking, okay, there's, there's something wrong here. So I, I call the clubhouse and the guy's like, are you cart 138? I'm like, yeah. He's like, that course you're on is closed for resodding. And I'm like, oh. You might want to tell the greenkeepers you got a few more divots you got to worry about. So I was on the wrong golf course. So I had to oh, quickly no. drive all the way across the resort to get onto the other front nine, which I only got about nine holes. So I got about 13 and a half holes in for my money before dinner. But the course that I played that was, I should have been playing the whole time was exceptional. Hmm. It was amazing. Didn't do very well, but it was amazing. So that was the highlight was playing the wrong golf course, Jay Shetty. Jay Shetty. And I, I now follow Reese Witherspoon on social media for her book club. Amazing. Sounds so. like you had a good time. Now, well, welcome back. Well, thanks for it. Same to you. Thank you. Today, we have Eric Wainwright from a website called stories.com. And stories as in real estate stories, as in uh, high building, multiple stories, uh, where they report on the national real estate market, both residential and commercial. We have Eric on to talk all about what he's seeing on the, on the national level. He talks a little bit about BC, talks all about Alberta, he talks about Alberta and the emerging market that exists there. He talks about Ontario. Uh, we also talk about the Canucks Stanley Cup forthcoming, Stanley Cup victory first in Canucks history coming up later this year, which he was very impressed and very happy to talk about right. as an Ontario person. Uh, so without further ado, let's get to our interview today with Eric Wainwright, Managing Directors of Stories.com. All right, let's go. This podcast is presented by Impact Commercial. Impact Commercial, John, Allen, the team over there are fantastic. They've been, all been on the show. They have, yeah. Friends of the show. Great guys. Wealth of experience. They can help with all your commercial financing needs. Whether it's owner-occupiers, land development funds, commercial investments, or multifamily, these guys got you covered. And they recently obtained their CMHC correspondent lender status. So for all your commercial lending needs, visit them at impactcommercial.ca. That's impactcommercial.ca. All right, we're here today with Eric Wainwright, Managing Director of Stories, which for some of our listeners may or may not know what Stories is. Stories is a tremendous online publication and website that talks about real estate, both commercial and residential on the national level. Eric, how are you doing today? Hey, yeah, great. Thanks for having me on. So hopefully I didn't botch that brief little description there. Can you maybe tell us more about the story of stories and how everything got started and, and how you ended up where you are? Yeah, absolutely. So as you said, you didn't, you didn't botch it too much. Uh, stories, uh, stories.com, uh, S-T-O-R-E-Y-S. We like puns over here. So we started out years ago as Toronto Stories and our publisher uh, runs a successful real estate PR business in Toronto. And around 2014, 2015, he was working with clients and they were looking at uh, digital options and a lot of uh, advertising dollars were moving to digital. And he looked around and thought, you know, I don't really love every everything that's out there. Uh, I think maybe 
there could be some stronger editorial coverage. And so in fall of 2016, he launched what was then Toronto Stories. They had some fits and, fits and starts, you know, kind of he was doing a bit of it off the side of his desk. As I said, he had a full another full-time job, successful firm he was running at the time. And so 19 out of 2019, uh, for sort of first day 2020, I came over to help sort of run the ship. Uh, so he wasn't have didn't, wouldn't have to handle the day to day. Um, and over the last four years, uh, yeah, we've seen a tremendous amount of growth. As you said, we are the sort of the leading uh, real estate news site in the country now. Uh, it's all we do. So we write more coverage of the market than anyone. About 150 original pieces of content a month. Uh, we have full-time staff out west, full-time staff in Ontario, and then uh, contributors in other western provinces and out in the Maritimes. So yeah, that's that's sort of who we are and and what we do and uh, stories.com. Well, I, I, A, I appreciate taking the time to come on. I know you're really, really busy and I've been following you guys for quite a while and I think you guys do a tremendous job reporting the stuff. Then for those listeners that don't know, there's various uh, websites out there that do uh, report on real estate from a national level that cover both commercial and residential. Um, I came across you guys a couple of years ago and I started following you then and I think you guys have done a tremendous job. So we're extremely excited to have you here. As you did touch on, you did, you mean, you guys did start out East in Toronto. Can I ask you, what are you guys seeing in Toronto? Obviously, right now, we're, we're, it feels like for year three, we keep saying we're in these unprecedented times, it feels like. But interest rates, hopefully, fingers crossed, have peaked or very close to peaking. What has Ontario experienced over the last, say, 12 or 24 months in the real estate side? What have you guys seen there from a, a coverage standpoint? Well, I don't think it's too different than the, than the sort of national reaction to, you know, 10 rate hikes uh, in 18 months. Um, no, nobody, nobody gets to escape. Um, but just like uh, Vancouver, um, you know, Vancouver, Toronto are the two largest markets in the country. So um, different from the, the, the national average uh, in that they're, they're such uh, large uh, areas of population. But um, I think that you know it's it's been difficult. Um, I don't I don't want to sugarcoat it. I don't think anybody is out there enjoying this market. Um, that doesn't mean that there aren't some opportunities, both in residential and commercial. But for the most part, I think that every time the interest rates are held, there's a collective sigh of relief. Yeah. And I think that everybody's sort of waiting for the first dip, for the first uh, lowering, to get back under five percent. I think that. Based on what I've read and what I've heard and the people I talk to, uh, I think that there you know, might not be pent-up demand when that happens, but certainly people will be a lot more willing to get uh, back into the market. Yeah, no, I, I definitely would agree with you. We kind of see that over here right now with just a whole bunch of people holding their breath right now, waiting for that first dip to come. And I'm going to be optimistic and say uh, spring... 2024. Now I might be putting a little ahead of the, you know, the horse ahead of the cart there, but I'm going to be optimistic. I think spring 2024, we start to see a little bit of relief on it. Uh, as you, as you mentioned there too, you guys are obviously covering, you know, the, the, the market on a national level. Um, what other provinces have you guys maybe been following or you've been reporting on that you've seen maybe positive news thinking maybe more in the Alberta market there where it seems like there's yeah, a lot that's... of positivity out there. What, what have you guys been seeing on that side on that front? Well, I think, yeah, definitely, if you're looking at the national level uh, in terms of significant urban centers, Calgary is definitely the current outlier. Everything seems to be uh, on the up there in a way that is just not reflective of the market at a national level. Um, so, you know, the con- condos are, are in boom there. Uh, the condo scene, I believe commercial is doing well. You speak better to that than I could. Um, but definitely, Calgary seems to be... Uh, you know, they've always said it's boom or bust, right? Yeah. And for some reason, uh, it's enjoying a bit of a uh, short-term boom when the rest of the country is uh, trying not to go bust. Well, I think from a commercial standpoint, and I mean this in the nicest way, it probably couldn't have got much worse than maybe mm-hmm. where it was over the past five or 10 years with the collapse of the oil market yeah. there and the vacancy in the office, stuff like that. So I know from a brokerage standpoint, we obviously are very bullish on Alberta and we've been following it for quite some time. And it does seem like things are moving in the right direction, even in markets like Edmonton. It feels certain asset classes are moving in the right direction. And I think when you look at the cost of living now out here in BC, and unless you're you're specifically tied to BC for some reason, um, Alberta offers a much 
you know, cheaper cost of living and dollars tend to go quite far over there. And it feels right now too, almost a lot of the people on the, especially in the industrial sector side of things, BC is so expensive, whether you're trying to acquire or even lease industrial type space. Uh, you know, Alberta seems to be one that's that's catching a lot of people's eye now from the tenant standpoint or the purchaser standpoint where they can go and they can build their tenant property. Yeah, well, there's also a good reason that it's catching people's eye. I mean, the, the Alberta government realized yeah. it, uh, rec- recognized it and put out an entire ad campaign <laughs> yeah. uh, based on that very proposition that, hey, you can actually afford to live here. Um, so I think it was back in the summer, maybe it was the spring, but um the, the federal government, SATSCAN, released the interprovincial migration update. Yeah. Um, and I think that it was, if I remember right, I think it was a, a record number of Ontarians uh, moved to uh, Alberta. So uh, it, you know, the ad campaign worked or just the reality of the cost of living worked. But um, yeah, certainly there's a there's a reason that people are, are going there and Housing has a lot to do with it. Now, do you think it has anything to do with the people are just giving up on the Leafs and are trying to maybe migrate to the Oilers oh, and to the, right. to the Flames oh, okay. there? Not, not that the Oilers uh, are really doing anything this year, but they were supposed uh, to do a little I more. I can, I can okay. only say so you, that right you now. Get, you, get, you get three guys leading the scoring race yeah, and suddenly yeah. you think uh, you're going to win. All right. Yeah. Oh, we'll yeah. well, trust me, we have the play, parade route planned. You mean it's already oh. booked on people's calendars out here? The thing, is, <laughs> oh, the thing is, the problem in Vancouver is we might be like 15 and 2, and then we could be like 30, 15 and 30 to finish up the year. Like that's, that's how our <laughs> team tends to go from time to time. But I guess we'll, we'll, ride, we'll ride the Canuck bandwagon as long as we can. They'll get you excited again and you'll say, you know, I'm not going to get into it this year. I'm not going to get into it. Yeah. You'll be right back in it and then yeah. they'll lose in the second round and it'll be great. See, so yeah, yeah. out here, our standards are just so low every year that, that if we <laughs> win one or two games, we're just like, after the Canucks beat the, the Oilers 8-1 in the very first game of the year, which felt like probably yeah. the worst game in Edmonton Oilers franchise history and the best game in Canucks franchise history. Uh, you know, people were people behind us in the seats were like motioning like the rings on the finger. Like they're coming, they're coming. I'm like, guys, we could be one in yeah. 10 here pretty quick. But thank yeah. we'll, 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 we'll take this it. as far as we can go. Canucks have probably yeah. have been the best golfers in the league for the past decade. So we will, we will definitely <laughs> try right. to ride this train as much as we can here. No, I would I would love to see any Canadian team win. Yeah, I'm with great. you on that. Uh, speaking of yeah. BC, you guys are obviously have been following BC, you've been reporting on BC. I mean, what are some stories that you've seen over the past, say, six or twelve months that have caught your eye, whether it be good, good or bad, out there in in the BC market, residential or commercial? Yeah, well, I think that um, as I said, BC and well, not well, Vancouver and Toronto. Uh, share the most commonalities uh, of of markets in Canada, but they still have a lot of differences as well. So it's been really interesting. Um, previous to this role, I worked at uh, for a different company and was out west a bit, and just learning the differences in what people value has has definitely shown up and reared its head throughout the pandemic. The access to space, uh, the size of your place, all of those things are kind of relevant. But I think one thing, actually, I came into this wanting to ask you a question, because I know on the commercial side, um, you know, strata opportunities really haven't taken off in Ontario in the same way. So I was wondering if you put any thought into that and wonder if you could sort of give me me a bit of a lesson as to why that might be the case, because it seems quite big out there. Yeah, well, I think I well, here's a good example. So you mean the strata boom, both residential and commercial took off probably most of what would you say, maybe 10, 12 years ago in the residential market, the strata market really, Bob Rennie, I think comes to mind when you talk about Rennie, and then kind of how he works with a lot of developers, geez, maybe more than 10, maybe 15 years ago now, maybe I'm maybe it's a lot longer than that, that really kind of got like the strata movement going. And that kind of filtered more in, over into commercial. But I can tell you right now, going to secondary markets, in BC, whether it be Victoria, Nanaimo, Kelowna, or Kamloops, uh, they really didn't have the strata boom that we had over here on the mainland, probably as early as maybe like five or six years ago. And I remember I spoke to a developer over there who was building a project, and they had some retail units. And I can't remember the exact sizes, but long story short, there was like 12,000 square feet of retail. And I remember asking the developer, why wouldn't you just make these like 1,200 square foot units and sell them to investors Mm -hmm. or owner occupiers? Because I think the final was like 8,000 square feet of retail and then a second straddle out at 5,000. And he stared at me 
and gave and like literally rolled his eyes like you're an idiot who's gonna buy them and i and then a light bulb in my head went off and i'm like they they has it hasn't come here yet and mm-hmm. i remember me and some partners we bought up a ton of strata lots in this exact area where now we've almost seen the price per foot almost double or maybe up by like 75 percent per foot because now what's happening is people over in the mainland They've woken up to these secondary markets. Now, granted, COVID's put some emphasis on that. But even before COVID, you go back maybe five, six, maybe seven years ago. Maybe it's a little too far back. But multifamily buildings in Victoria for old wood frame walk-ups, you could buy them at probably a five and a half cap rate. But in the mainland, they were probably at that time like a three cap rate. And what happened was our office was just getting going over there. I remember looking at this thing and once people realized the vacancy rate in that asset class in Victoria is almost the same as the lower mainland, look out. And what happened over that five-year period is everyone woke up to that and off they came. Through that same time period, the strata market started taking off in greater Victoria. It's taken off in Kelowna because now the buyer pool has changed. And if you look at some projects over there, I think, I mean, there's been some buildings that had completed probably like in like the 2020, 2019 timelines where they were developed and these were condo buildings and they were probably like delivering the product, but probably still had 15 or 20% of the inventory left to sell. Fast forward to a project that we're involved with over there called the Nest that Chard Developments is doing. It's a 12-story build. And I think they're like sold out or very close to sell out. And they're probably only like three or four stories above grade. And that just goes to show you the buyer's cycle where a lot of these secondary markets, they almost had to go in and like physically touch the product to believe it was there versus people on the mainland, we'd buy off floor plans. That same buyer strategy is creeping into those markets. So to look at a market like Ontario, where maybe the strata boom hasn't taken off on the commercial side or whatever asset class it is, once people start waking up to that, it's going to have a massive flurry and impact and then people will scramble to keep up. And when you look at like, Kamloops, for an example, which has a very, very low vacancy rate on the industrial side of things. If I said to you, go find me 1,500 square feet or 2,000 square feet with a grade level loading door or even a dock level loading door for that matter of a strata lot in that market, it doesn't exist. Now, granted, there is a couple of buildings that have it, but I'm trying to, the point I'm making is they're so hard to find because the strata boom hadn't actually really, uh, hadn't really materialized there yet. So now mm-hmm. developers are scrambling to try to find the land to build this product. Now, the question becomes, can you build it in a secondary market with concrete at a price that's affordable in a high interest market? That's a different story. But what would be an example of, of a successful market right now? Uh, to give you an example, like markets that I think are, are really secondary, secondary market. Victoria has been, yeah. Victoria and Kelowna have definitely been leaders out here in BC. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, the thing that will the thing that will come to mind when I say leaders, I mean, you know, more residential developments coming up. At one point in time, the lowest vacancy rate, and still might be, uh, the lowest vacancy rate for industrial in Canada was like the Greater Victoria area, because so okay. many things, um, so many businesses were looking to go there and relocate and were reopening that the product didn't exist, the strata market didn't really exist. So the question becomes, all this massive demand that's happened, is that just pent-up demand that we're cycling through or is this ongoing demand because of the area? And that we don't have an answer to just yet. Fast forward five years, we can probably answer that better. But the thing I think will be an interesting thing when you look at the development of Kelowna and their downtown core and all the towers that are coming in, Victoria kind of the same way, Will short-term rentals have dramatic impact on those two particular markets because they're outside of the 10,000 population base? And on top of that is in Greater Kelowna, where a lot of some of these developments, part of the pitches have been zonings that allow for short-term rentals. And that's probably helped some of the pricing. Well, yeah, I think we're working on on an article right now that is about the consequences of the pinch on short-term rentals and what that's going to do to that market. I mean, you know this because we met in person, but uh, last month when I was in Vancouver meeting with different people, um, I couldn't believe how much the Okanagan kept coming up uh, as a a source of uh, kind of everything, residential and commercial, but just that was where the most uh, buzz was. Um, You know, Kelowna, Penticton, um, everything happening out there. Uh, so I think we're definitely going to be keeping more of an eye on that. Yeah. Uh, but in you. terms of what what we're seeing in the BC market specifically, and some stories that 
Uh, sorry, you can't avoid the pun. Uh, but some stories that we're continuing to tell. It reflects the greater um, sort of market uncertainty, which is to say, who is surviving and how? That's obviously going to be a big topic. We're going to see more and more of, of that kind of coverage, unfortunately, I think, whether that's the latest announcement of WeWork uh, and its sort of Canadian uh, exodus uh, yeah. of some kind, uh, or we're talking about uh, developers who are struggling. Uh, I just, I think you're going to see more of that as the rates continue to impact the ability to uh, get funding and handle debt. I think it's going to be a huge, huge storyline for the next six months is who's able to navigate through this and yeah. uh, who who isn't. Well, touching base on that, obviously you guys are in the reporting side and we definitely don't have to use names and I'm not putting any names out there. Have you guys heard or seen or reported on maybe some developers, whether it be BC or even on the national level that are having some challenges? I know we've been reading about a few of them and there's a bunch of rumors out there. Um, but have you guys, yeah. what, what have you guys seen on the national level from a reporting standpoint? Yeah, just uh, just an incredible amount of, yeah, whispers, uh, rumors. You know, we're not trying to ever report on those. We're trying to report on action with, you know, verified sourcing, using court documents, you know, talking about actual receivership when it's happening as opposed to just pondering. I think just the influx of people who are in trouble or are deeply worried is yeah. is worrying in itself. It's a tough racket on the best of days. Yeah. Uh, and I think that the current economic situation has only made it more difficult and people are continuing to feel the pinch. I mean, the obviously the, the big name one uh, in Toronto is the one, uh, the what was supposed to be I think Sky Tower, Pinnacle Sky Tower, has now overtaken that. With okay. uh, it's, it's now now been approved a hundred stories uh, recently. Wow. Um, but the the one uh, was supposed to be uh, the largest Canadian uh, residential tower, and has just gone into receivership. So wow. whether they can figure that out, make make it back out, uh, there I believe there's somewhere around forty stories uh, built already. So it's just sort of sitting in limbo at this minute. Yeah, you know that's that's a massive story. Yeah, um, here's a, here's a the biggest luxury condo in the you know downtown, and so yeah, there. Whether that's representative of of one development or many, uh, you know, we don't know yet. But yeah, whispers and rumors abound. But it's hard in this industry to figure out who's cheering for who. Yeah. Uh, so we're just trying to report on. On the facts. I think one thing too that that I think from the development standpoint is again I'm not speaking about any one specific developer, but just the natural progression of what or may may or may not happen to, with some of them is. I mean, a lot of land over here in BC had some tremendous upticks year over year over year. It felt like, and a lot of developers. Uh, you know, could probably raise capital quite easily for the development business, but also when their land was appreciating at such high values, you could continuously to probably refinance capital out of that land to expand and expand and expand. And the challenge is if you don't start getting shovels in the ground or getting product delivered at some point, land just becomes very expensive and off, all of a sudden you mm -hmm. fast forward, interest rates take off and that land becomes super expensive. And I know of a previous developer uh, over here, I believe, went into receivership maybe a year or two years ago now. But that was one of the challenges from my understanding they had is they could continue to refinance land, just got to the point mm -hmm. that the debt just caught up to them. And whether that happens to anyone right now, but that's been one very successful uh, pattern for a lot of BC or BC real estate holders is you could reassess your land almost year over year and get a small amount of equity out of that just because the value had gone up so much. So I think it'll mm -hmm. be really interesting to see over the next, you know, 120, 150, 180 days is, you know, does anyone get themselves in a position where it's just, it's too much or has been too much? Cause right now there's a lot of rumors out there and, and stuff like that. And you know, I mean, there also could be for well-financed capital play and, you know, a company like Concord Pacific out here, which I think is Concord 8X in Toronto. Yep. There was a previous developer that got in trouble in a Wally 
uh, Surrey project years and years and years ago now. And I think they picked they picked it up for pennies on the dollar and finished the project off. And it was probably you know a little before its time in the area that it's in, but it's done really, really well. So it'll be interesting to see if there's well-capitalized developers that are in positions that they can maybe take advantage of, other ones who maybe aren't as well-capitalized right now. Because you know, I mean, nothing's coming down anytime soon, or at least into a, a number that's going to be significant enough that's probably going to allow people to breathe. It's probably going to be a very slow burn over the next couple of years, it sounds like, to get these interest rates back in line with maybe where they were pre-pandemic or maybe not even that low. Well, you know, there's, you know, people are making T-shirts with the hashtag stay alive for 25. So, yeah, I think it's I think it's going to be a bit of a, a six month uh, hold on and let's see. But, you know, hopefully Tiff and, and crew can feel good enough to, to start, I don't know, easing up. Well, I think when you look at it from heading into next year, and we actually had Doug Porter, uh, head of BMO Capital Markets, head economist there on the program not too long ago. And, you know, he made a really good point. We asked him, what, what's going what's gonna to be the lead headline for 2024? What's going to dominate the headlines? And, you know, he said the, he, his prediction was, and he's probably right. He's been, you know, the, you know, a man far smarter than I'll ever be, uh, yeah. you know, the political race. The federal yeah. political race, he said, will be your 2024 topics. And, you know, right now, you mean the liberals, you know, heading into that, you mean are sitting on the the heels of the highest interest, we, interest rates we've seen in for over 40 years that I can't imagine there's not some pressure from the feds to try to get these rates down or at least show that we're going in the right direction because it's going to be the topic of all all parties, I'm going to get, I'm guessing, in 2024 is inflation and the cost of living and the interest rates that we have to deal with and, you know, you know, you know, the liberals put us here. We got to get them out. Versus the story from the liberals is like, you know, this was out of our control. But look how well we managed it, and we're coming down. So I think it'll be interesting to see how next year's. What from a reporting standpoint, you guys are obviously, I'm assuming, following the politics that kind of tie into the real estate world. What are your thoughts on everything heading into next year? Well, yeah, I mean, it is. We're we're talking on uh, November 21st, and. Later today, the federal government is supposed to release their fall economic statement. And within that, the rumor is that there will be billions uh, in terms of support for both construction and housing costs. I don't have the details yet. I don't know how they're going to play it out. But it's very, very clear that what you said, both housing and affordability are top of mind for. I mean, look, this is something that we noticed during the pandemic is that real estate used to be a niche topic, used to be, you know, a secondary tier. That's no longer the case. It's no longer just some investors, you know, talking to each other about it or, you know, young people talking about their rent and being upset. It's it's everybody. It's a, you know, it's a morning, noon and night topic of conversation. And I think that finally the government is starting to recognize the impact that having on everyone. So absolutely. I mean, Polyev is running half his platform or more just on affordability and being more affordable than it is now. So yeah, yeah, I think, I think it will continue to be uh, a dominant topic. I don't know at this point, I think I'm worried that there's no plan, that there's never really been a plan to get the housing starts on track. Um, We wrote an article about a year ago uh, that basically said as much. There is no cohesive plan across multi-levels of government to produce enough housing in this country. And meanwhile, more people continue to move here, and we are not on pace. And there doesn't seem to be any real direction for that. So yeah, I think it's affordability. Anyone looking for affordability to ease up, is. I don't see it happening. I'm no economist. I'm no. I'm no quarter. Well, I think. I think it's, it's it's simple supply and demand, and you know, supply and demand and basic math, right? Like, like you know, in Canada, we have an aging population. We our birth rate isn't keeping up to that, so immigration is is much needed in this country, and is amazing on all facets. The challenge with yeah. immigration, especially when you're having record-setting numbers, is when we struggle to supply housing to the existing people that are here. The immigration is just going to compound that problem. And when you look at how long it takes to get projects through from the time you acquire a piece of land or to get shovels in the ground to delivery, these can be like 24 to like 60 month timelines, depending on the product, to actually get it in. And I think it's going to be very interesting moving forward when you look at, you mean, the record set of immigrations that that Canada has 
coupled with the challenges we have in markets like BC, which is challenged both geographically and politically now, it feels like, to get product out, similar probably in Ontario from a political standpoint, is the yep. markets that a lot of these people want to end up moving into are going to be even just compressed even further with a housing crunch. And it's a simple math equation. If I deliver 10,000 doors this year, but 70,000 people show up, that leaves me a hole of 60,000 people. And if that compounds year over year over year, it's simple math. And It's, and I, it's simple math, but there's no simple solution. No. And I think that that's the unfortunate reality. And so my worry continues to be that with without that solution in place, um, yeah. yeah, it just continues to get worse. One thing I was I was reading, I think it's late 2024 slash early 2025 is where you're going to see the largest amount of kind of like COVID fixed rates coming due for renewal. And that's coming mm-hmm. on probably more on the residential side of things. So you got to think that if we figured that out on our level, that Tim Macklin's obviously figured this out long before that, that there's going to have to be a strategy in place, I think, to try to get this in line or... The Fed's got to step up and, you know, maybe they introduce, maybe they they work with the Schedule 1 banks and introduce like interest-only mortgage payments or something like that, at least in the short term, because you're going to have a real tough time for people that have a, a 2.25 fixed rate on a family that has fixed income and their mortgage is going to double or triple on them. You're going to have a real tough well, time in your housing market. Yeah. I mean, I was talking with a friend uh, the other night and he had, he didn't have a fixed, he had a variable. And he can remember a couple of years ago, they were saying, oh, why don't you lock in at 2.25? And he was at, you know, 1.4 and laughing at them and saying, why would I lock in? Well, he just locked in on a five-year fix at 6.79. Yeah. Um, Yeah. You know, his his monthly payment went from something like 289 to over 1,100. Like he, you know, that is, now he's fortunate enough in that he has a position uh, where he can work overtime and pick up extra shifts if he wants to and needs to. And in this case, he does need to. So he'll be okay. But how many millions of people don't have that opportunity? I mean, you're right. We we covered we covered this recently as well. There's something like 2 million mortgages over the next 24 months. And I believe that the, the term was, will be in for a shock. Like it, you know, it, it's, it's gonna, it's a very real thing that's happening. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I've got the opposite story. So I was I was the bonehead or perceived bonehead at the time where we had purchased our latest house sort of pre-COVID. And at that time, they were talking about interest rates were actually going to be going up. So I locked in, I think at 3.5. And during COVID, right. I was the bonehead where my, I was paying probably thousands of dollars a month in unneeded interest. And fast forward to today, I'm the smartest guy in the room. That's but, right. Yeah, I'm due up next year. So, so I'm right in that bracket where I'm going to get nailed on my renewal that there's a yeah. lot of people out there that are all going to be in the same boat. So I would like to think that the Schedule 1 banks and the feds have probably obviously had this conversation. But you know, maybe they have to work together and they introduce you know interest-only mortgages or something like that to help people get over the hump until rates kind of subside a little bit. Because I think you have a real tough time where if mortgages payments are doubling or tripling or quadrupling on, on families that have fixed income. That's going to be a very challenging thing moving forward. And we don't have any rental supply to support. So it's not like these people can sell pocket money and then go rent for a year or two to wait for things to subside. That rental market doesn't really exist very well. So it'll be very interesting to see what happens. No. And and the rental market's also at all-time highs. So even if you can get in, you're paying a crazy amount of money as well. So what are what are your thoughts for 2024 from a headline standpoint? Obviously, obviously we're not asking anyone to make a prediction on the real estate market, but what what do you think dominates the headlines in 2024? Is it interest rates? Is it the political race? Is it the Canucks Stanley Cup win? What dominates the 2024 <laughs> headlines? See, I stood that one yeah. in there really quick. Yeah, I, I did. I did. Well, I think <laughs> you know, look, we we can we can all fantasize. I think that Unfortunately, probably for the first couple months, it's going to be more of the same. So I I do think that the level of uncertainty will continue. I think that confidence has really taken a hit in in the market uh, and people's willingness to get involved. You know, a lot of recent headlines have have been about the in terms of the residential market, at least in terms have been about um, shifting the the sort of buyer standpoint and how they have now backed off buyers have backed off and sellers don't know what to do because for so long in this market, not necessarily nationally, but in the hottest local markets, you know, if you wanted to sell your house, that was never a problem. 
And then through the pandemic, it became ridiculous where if you wanted to sell your house and then add 50%, you could probably get it. Um, And now the big feedback is that sellers want the pandemic highs uh, for their property and buyers are saying, well, we're we're willing to wait now. And so there's a bit of a, a panic on the selling side. I think that all of that to say is I believe in uncertainty remaining for the beginning and then hopefully a slow return to normal over the course of the year and uh, a lot of hope for, for 2025. Yeah. Well, I, I'm, I'm with you on that. I, I, I echo what you say. I'm very bullish, obviously, in real estate, not just from the position that I'm in from a, a working standpoint, but also just watching that. The challenge is there's no more land getting made in this country and you have a housing crunch now that's only going to get worse. And I think when you look at the residential side and maybe Melissa can chime in because she'll know this better than I will, but I would like to think demand is probably to purchase has probably never been higher because people haven't bought. People haven't been able to qualify for the stress test. So mm-hmm. I would think that that people are sort of sitting there. They want to buy. Yeah. They just can't buy. What are you seeing, Melissa, on like the housing front right now, obviously? heading in, We're heading into the holidays, but let's say pre-holidays, you know, the fall of 2023. How busy or not busy was it? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't super busy, but there's still the demand, right? There's still yeah. people who want to make moves who are not able to because of interest rates. And so it's it's sort of this pent-up demand that we all know once the interest rates stabilize, once they start to come down, yeah. the demand is still there, right? Are people making more of a lateral move now where maybe they're going from like a, a townhouse to a bigger townhouse versus a townhouse to a house? It's hard to do because even if you go to try to sell your townhouse, you're not There's you're no not more. getting what you would expect in order to make that move up, right? Yeah. And to qualify point. for what you want, it's just not feasible in some cases. Right? So I think I think collectively we feel demand is there. Oh, it's for just sure. a matter of yeah. absolutely. I think too, just uh, what Melissa said there is important. There's a slight catch there, which is interest rates haven't even stabilized yet. We are still being told every time there's an announcement, well, we might raise this again. Like, we're not even at a point of here we are and it's only down. We're, we're still very much in a who knows. So yeah. that level of uncertainty is even higher than, uh, you know, well, we're going to sit at 5% for a while. This is who knows, right? We don't. So people are very wary to get involved in something that's immediately going to cost them more money. Yeah, no, that's, that's a great point. That's a great point. We'll be interested to see. Like I said, I think I think a lot of people are thinking the latter half of next year will probably get a lot busier. And then 2025 could be an extremely busy year in the real estate industry just because now demand will probably start to flush out a little bit. Hopefully, yeah. rates will be much more favorable. I mean, too, like I think it's important too, like being in the media, we're not interested in promoting scary headlines or talking about the market and any way that isn't realistic. It's it's why I appreciate having conversations with with you and with with other insiders who kind of can speak to what's actually going on on the ground level. I think it's important for stories as we move forward to really make sure that that we're doing the best job representing what's happening. That doesn't mean that in in any way that doesn't mean that you know it's it's gumdrops and rainbows or anything. But I think that um, it's our responsibility to present a balanced representation because this thing could get out of hand really quickly if yeah. all that's being reported is uh you know the, the nightmare story after nightmare story i mean there's as we just highlighted earlier there's still good things happening in real estate across the country you know not quite a national movement but um there are pockets where there's still positivity so is it fair to say that ron burgundy who said when it bleeds at least <laughs> was lying to us how the media portrays <laughs> stories I mean, I you know, <laughs> no no blood, no foul. I don't know. Sure. Yeah, you know, I, lo- I I I subscribe to the Burgundy uh, school of journalism from time to time, but that's only after a few scotches. Well, Eric, let's leave it there. But before we let you go, we appreciate taking the time to join us there. We've got our six-pack of lighthearted questions we ask all of our guests, so we get to know you a little bit more outside of the office. Do you have just a few more minutes for us? For sure. The six-pack is powered by our good friends over at Red Point Law. Red Point Law, Corey, Tim, Falco, Scott, and the team, these are great people with a wealth of experience when it comes to commercial closings and private lending. And I just want to say, Corey, not to cut you off, they have a perfect five-star review on Google. So for all your commercial legal needs, visit them at redpointlaw.ca with offices in Vancouver and now open in downtown Kelowna.
first question up. Melissa, take, take it away. All right. What is your favorite vacation spot? Oh, well, um, I have two young kids. So my favorite vacation spot right now is anywhere that's an all-inclusive uh, and <laughs> brings, brings me drinks and lets them play freely and have a great time. Uh, outside of that, uh, I just got back from a lovely trip with some friends and family in, in the south of France for the first time, and I would not say no to that again. Wow. Wow. Sounds exciting. Next question up. Yeah. You've unfortunately found yourself, Eric, on death row. You're allowed one more meal before it's all said and done. What meal are you having? Oh, man. I think my, my mother's uh, Caesar salad. Oh, Ooh, that sounds well. Yeah. T- tell us yeah, more now about she, this. Now I'm, now, have, now I'm really well, excited. Well, I'm going to have to make her listen to this podcast so she okay. understands. <laughs> okay. Well, I just really... so you know, if your mom listens, we'll go from six listeners to seven. So we appreciate <laughs> your mom listening in. Hi, mom. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I'm <laughs> Hi, Eric's mom. Thank you for listening. To, how to download that. Uh, no, it's just, it was a real staple in my childhood. And uh, she, she does a great chicken Caesar salad with, you know, oh. like real bacon mm. and all that. Oh, man. Oh, man. I, I, I got to come to Toronto. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds good. All right. Next question. What is your favorite band or artist? Uh, yeah, I got to go with uh, Robert Zimmerman. Bob Dylan. Bobby D. Bob uh, Dylan. Yeah. I, my father is such a Dylanite that he actually taught a university class on Bob Dylan and literature of the 60s. So wow. I didn't have a, I didn't have a choice. I, I came in like a... Rolling Stone and uh, yeah, no, no choice. That's well, uh, gotta be Bob. Never go wrong with Bob Dylan. Never go yeah. wrong with Bob Dylan. Next He's question okay. up. You've had a couple drinks. You're feeling really good about yourself. You're in a bar with your buddies and someone hands you a microphone to sing karaoke. What song are you singing? Oh no, I passed the mic. I'm tone deaf. Oh, Never uh, not a good old Bob Dylan song. Nothing you could do to get me up there. I'd need at least 30 more drinks. I uh, know. I honestly, it would be painful for everybody. What about like Nickelback photograph? Sure no, no. no. Melissa's favorite is Nickelback photograph. That's her. That's her. I don't believe song. that. No, I don't believe that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, next question. Uh, one book you recommend our listeners read? Oh man, fiction or nonfiction? Your choice. Anything. <sighs> um. Uh, I would read Miles Davis's bi- autobiography. Mm-hmm. Uh, great. He is, uh, in my mind, one of, in many people's minds, one of the greatest musicians of the 20, 20th century. And uh, it's just a really, really interesting look at somebody who was both immensely talented, but also understood uh, the technical capacity of music and he holds nothing back. It's rude and uh, interesting. And yeah, it's, it's, it's a wild ride. Yeah. Sounds like a good one. Last question up here, Eric. Something that you've purchased for under $1,500 lately that's had a positive impact on your life. For under $1,500? For under fifteen. If, if, if you if you If you spend a lot of money, we can raise the bar to $2,500 if that's easier. But something no. that you've purchased... <laughs> For under fifteen hundred dollars, it had a positive impact on you. It could be an app, it could be like a Peloton, it could be anything. Something you purchased yeah. for a positive impact. You know what? I I bought uh, I bought a really nice uh, French chef's knife, and mm. uh, I like to do a little, little well, 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 well under $1,500, but one tenth of that. But I was yeah. uh, kind of my first real knife in the kitchen and I've gotten into cooking over the last few years. And uh, I remember getting my wife to cut through some vegetable with it at some point. And she said, I actually didn't know a knife could, could feel like that when cutting something. So I'm very, very wow. happy with my shiny new knife. What, uh, what brand was that knife asking for a friend considering Christmas is around the corner here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, I got it at this lovely nice shop in Toronto. The guy is amazing. Talking about the history of knives. It's great. Wow. You got to appreciate a guy that's got passion like that. Well, Eric, how can all of our listeners find out more about you and all the amazing, amazing uh, publications and, and, and articles you're putting out there through Stories? Stories.com. Uh, we, as I said at the beginning of this, we we cover the market more than anyone. We update continuously throughout the day. Uh, everything from from commercial and residential coverage to insider takes to 
really nice property listings. We speak to renters, we speak to owners. So if you're interested even tangentially in real estate, there's something there for you. And if, if you're an expert, we we still think like to think that there's value there for you as well. So everybody in Canada interested in it, check it out. Well, I'll, I'll back that up. I've followed it for a long time and you guys continue to put out great publications, great stories. I love getting the emails. Okay, thanks. Uh, Go Leafs. <laughs> thanks so much for joining us, Eric. Have, take, have, take care. Thanks, Eric. Bye-bye. There you have it, folks. Our interview with Eric Wainwright, Managing Director of Stories.com. Good conversation. Great conversation. It's it's always good to have people who are kind of there, like in the media and the reporting standpoint, to always hear their stories and what they're seeing there. Because obviously- No pun intended. No pun intended. Uh, obviously, obviously hearing what they're seeing. And one thing, one takeaway for me is Ron Burgundy has lied to me for the better part of a decade. I thought the media- Always led with the negative, but Eric Eric has quickly changed my mind on that. Debunked, and he's debunked Ron Burgundy's story there. That if it bleeds, it leads. That's right. So I think uh, it was great having Eric. I would highly recommend people that if you are if you want to follow the real estate market, whether it be on a BC level or a national level, to definitely go to stories.com, sign up for their 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 uh, their e blast. I get them. They they do great reporting. I know commercial is now more on the forefront as he talked about. They are getting into that. And they are, they've expanded out from Ontario out west here. So I would definitely uh, encourage anyone, if you want to follow the, the national or the local real estate market, to visit stories.com. Sign up for that. Melissa, how can people get a hold of you if they want to buy and sell uh, residential real estate in this crazy market you're working within? Yeah, you can call me, 778-869-4477, or email me at melissa at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. And if you want to deal in commercial, feel free to reach out to us. You can send me an email, Corey at WilliamWright.ca. Always happy to talk real estate. You can call our Vancouver office at 604-428-55. We'll put you in touch with what we think is the best broker for whatever you're looking for within the province of BC. Or you can always visit our website, WilliamWright.ca. Sign up for the latest and greatest news. All right. Well, thanks for listening, guys. We'll be back next week with another great episode. Take care. Have a good week. Subscribe today. 